when you're learning something, you don't care about it as much unless you've got what like what you call skin in the game. Like if something actually has real world sort of application to you and your life, that's when the theoretical learnings you learn start to really make sense. Hi everyone, welcome to Be One Bite, where Business One takes a bite out of professional insight. This is Amanda. And I'm Sam, and we are podcast officers at Business One Consulting Club in the University of Melbourne. Today, we have the honour to have Louisa Ling, the founder of the Beauty Press on Meal brand, Acrylic, who is also an investment banking analyst at Flagstaff Partners, to join us in the episode and share her entrepreneur and corporate journey with our audience. Hi, Louisa. Um, we're so glad to have you today. Hi. Thanks for having me on this um, episode. I, it's my first ever podcast interview, and so I'm very excited to be sharing a bit about you know, my journey and my story and to potentially give your listeners something to take away. Yeah, so just a little bit about myself. I am a recent Com Law graduate from Monash University, so um, I was at Monash for about six years. I majored in finance, and so... I graduated November 2021 and I've just started my grad role at Flagstaff Partners, as you've mentioned, um, as an investment banking analyst. Um, so I'm about five, six months into the job now. Um, so that's sort of a bit about my like uni life and work sort of history. And then during my time at uni, I, yeah, I started an online business, an e-commerce brand called Acrylic, and we sell press-on nails. So the brand is about almost two years old now um, and it's obviously still a work in progress and it's something that you know, I do on the side, but obviously right now my main focus is on, you know, building my career. That sounds really interesting from how you start a business as a student to now become a full-time, well-still-juggling accolade friend. So um, can you tell us a bit more about how's the transition and the journey like from a university student to a business founder, then an investment banker? Well, the transition has honestly been difficult. Um, you know, you go from a uni student where everything's sort of fed to you, right? They give you, you know, every single week, you know exactly what you're studying, you know what pages to read. So everything is handed to you and you actually have a lot of time when you're a uni student. You don't appreciate it while at uni, but once, you're, once you've started a full-time job outside of uni, you realise that, okay, life was really good back then. <laughs> so, no, the transition... Look, it's been difficult, but um, because I did a very demanding degree, I would say that I'm used to, you know, like studying long hours, working late hours, and so transitioning into a banking role was a bit smoother than, I guess, maybe someone who might not have studied as, I guess, intense of a degree. I guess what I'm trying to say here is that, you know, I when I was at uni, I took on quite a few things. So I had obviously my Commodore degree. I worked, I think, two jobs or three jobs once upon a time, juggling that alongside uni. And so, um, yeah, working and sleeping crazy hours, you know, it's not foreign to me. But, yeah, it's still definitely a big change going from, you know, uni life to now working um, a full-time role because um, you've got to really sort of take initiative now. You know, things aren't just going to be fed to you. And if you miss deadlines, it's, you know, the there are real consequences. It's not just losing marks, you know, uh, for the semester. It's actually losing clients it's you know having 
people losing people's trust and so yeah it's definitely a bit of a transition um the other thing i'd say is starting to i've had to learn to prioritize so obviously monday to friday and some weekends i'd be working and so with the limited free time that i do have you've got to learn to say no and if that means saying no to you know a catch-up um because you haven't rested in a while it's yeah being able to know when to prioritize what to prioritize and how to you know say no to people definitely that's a very good tips like having to prioritize your time given that you're so busy having so many multiple roles at the same time it's a really good tip for students who are also looking to start a business or do something they're really interested in at their free time just adding on on this i'm curious what do you think are the things that you did in uni that help you the most in building your startup i think it wasn't so much the things I did at uni, but rather the way my degree has taught me to think. So, for example, um, because I studied com law, my law degree, surprisingly, even though I didn't end up pursuing a career in law, it's actually been very helpful in starting my business because it's made me a bit more aware of, you know, ways or made me conscious of, you know, protecting myself against, you know, things. Like, for example, when I was designing my product packaging, I was aware that, you know, I sell a beauty product, you know, there might be, um, like, for example, there's glue in my product. And so there are certain warnings and disclosures that you need to have on the packaging in order for it to comply with, you know, regulations. And so, yeah, being able to um, think in that way and think a few steps ahead to have all that packaging designed with all the warnings on there uh, right in the beginning so I don't have to change it halfway through I think that was that's one thing that sort of that I took away from uni my finance degree it's just taught me to think commercially you know it's it's very different understanding something in theory and putting things into practice so I say that starting a business has really allowed me to yeah put my learnings into practice finally and see the real world application of the things that I've learned back at uni. I'm a commerce student as well, but I don't feel like I can launch a business with my commerce degree. There's a lot that comes with it, including like (laughs) your life experiences and like all of that adding up together to build Uh, who you are today, I believe. I think also when you're learning something, you don't care about it as much unless you've got what what you call skin in the game. If something actually has, you know, real world sort of application to you and your life, that's when the learnings that you, like the theoretical learnings you learn in school, in uni, start to really make sense. Definitely. Yeah. Hopping on to your position as the startup founder as Acrylic, um, what inspired you to venture into the beauty industry alongside university work and how did you identify a gap in the press on your market? The beauty industry is huge. It's constantly growing, but it is massive and there's a lot of opportunity in the beauty industry more broadly. But I think, um, you know, I guess the first thing you think about is, okay, there are so many beauty brands out there already. We don't need any more. But when you sort of think about the beauty industry as a whole and then the different niches that actually exist within that, the broader beauty industry, there are niches that are yet to be explored or like there are a lot of niches that people don't know about. So, for example, Press on Nails, you know, it's, it's always existed. You go to Priceline, you go to Chemist Warehouse, and you always see those flimsy French tip sort of nails. Um, so, yeah, the concept of press-on nails and fake nails, it's not new. But I think, so during COVID, a lot of people 
um, a lot of nail techs, you know, weren't able to work because of, you know, the lockdowns and all that. And so I noticed that all the nail techs were hand-making press-on nails and sending them out to the clients. And that way um, people are still able to get nice nails, but they don't have to go to the salon, for example. And I thought, oh, that's actually a really cool idea because it just popularized fake nails again. But the ones that nail techs made didn't look fake at all. They, you know, they really looked like ones that were done at the salon because they were. And so I thought, okay, I'm not a nail tech myself, but I'm sure I can find a manufacturer who can make fake nails that look real. And so I, you know, went online, I saw a few manufacturers, um, got samples from quite a few of them and then yeah, I went with a manufacturer that was of the highest quality. And yeah, all the other reason why I started this brand and, you know, and why I decided to press on nails is because my best friend Anna, she's a nurse. And so there are people who work in certain professions where they're unable to um, go to the nail salon. They're unable to actually get the nails done because of, you know, hygiene reasons or, you know, just purely because of lifestyle. And so the problem that press on nails solve is that there are people who might just want to look good for a night out. So you can stick the nails on and then before you head back to work, you can take them off. So it's a reusable product and it's convenient. It takes less than, less than 10 minutes to apply. So, um, yeah, it's just I saw that there was a gap in the market there. Wow, that's really cool. Identifying <laughs> the demand from the friends like close to you. Yeah, actually, the other thing also is that um, when you go to the nail salon, it can cost, you know, 50 up to 100 bucks just to, you know, get a set of nails have them on for two to three weeks, have to go back to remove them. And so it does cost cost quite a bit. And so, you know, there are some people who might not be like have the budget to spend, you know, $100 every fortnight. And, you know, that was the case with me when I was back in school. You know, I didn't have the money to be going to the salon all the time, but I always saw, you know, all my girlfriends with, you know, really beautiful nails. And I just didn't know how I could achieve the same results um, in a cost-effective yeah. way. Um, and, you know, press on nails, you know, they cost half the price and they're reusable. So the cost per use actually goes down every single time you reuse the nails. So I just think, yeah, it solves quite a few problems. Definitely. With Pressum Nail, we can probably change a nail style every day, every week. <laughs> We're seven yeah. nails in a week. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Thing. And you yeah. can match like your outfit. If you decide to wear like a blue dress one day, you put some blue nails on and then the next day you might want to try a different outfits. To be honest, even, you know, in my job, I type a lot. I'm always on, you know, the keyboard, um, doing the Excel modeling and all that. Well, not yet because I'm not quite there yet in my position. I'm still learning and training. But, um, yeah, I'm on the keyboard a lot. And so Mondays to Fridays, I don't wear my own nails because mm -hmm. they just get in the way. But when I go out on the weekends, that's when I put them on. That's when, you know, I feel like, you know, I look put together. But then, yeah, before I head back to work the next week, I'll take my nails off and, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I feel like even for those who goes to gym to work out or do like Pilates, it's so like inconvenient if they have the fixed nail on their finger and just like too long <laughs> and they couldn't do any movement. Exactly. Yeah. The yeah. other thing also that just makes me think, you know, when some people have like a full set of nails, but then they break one. So then mm -hmm. like the press on nails can be a quick fix so you can sort of apply it as a temporary solution if you don't have time to go to the salon to get your nails fixed. <laughs> so many advantages here. <laughs> and you talk about how you um, identified this gap in the market and then you go online to source your suppliers, come up with the design and all of that. Um, we're wondering what are some of the challenges you face when you begin acrylic and how do you resolve them? And what are the important takeaways from these lessons? Um, 
quite a lot of challenges actually. I think even the key, like the first one I'd say would be budget, right? You know, I started this brand on my own. I am a solo founder and so um, I needed to have enough capital to firstly you know, invest in the business and to import inventory and, you know, I didn't want to have to rely on anyone. I didn't want to ask my parents for money. I didn't want to take out a loan. And so um, because luckily I worked quite a lot when I was younger, um, I had, you know, a certain amount saved up that I was willing to, you know, put into the business. So I guess from a funding perspective, that was an initial an initial challenge. And then when you go on to start sourcing manufacturers, you soon realise that manufacturers, you know, there are certain minimum order quantities that you have to hit before they're willing to work with you. Um, and so for me, the manufacturer that I ended up liking the most, they ended up having the highest minimum order quantity. And so for my first ever import, um, I needed to hit a 5,000 minimum order quantity, or they call MOQ. And so, you know, it was a lot of money and it was a lot to sort of like risk. Yeah, when I imported my first batch, um, I had yeah, 5,000 sets of nails sitting in the lounge room. Being able to find and source a manufacturer who can, you know, meet a certain quality requirement of yours, but also at a reasonable MOQ can be very challenging and probably one of the barriers to entry in, you know, starting any sort of business. Then what about, because I saw your website, which is really cute and really well organized. For the website part, do you also design and build it for yourself or do you ask for um, your friends who knows how to build a website to help you? When I launched, my website was built on my own. Um, I actually started working on the website 24 hours before launch day. Um, wasn't the best move, but I was very, I was spread very thin at the time and I really didn't have that much time. Um, but no, it wasn't, didn't require any coding because I use a platform called Shopify. I know, I'm sure a lot of brand, e-commerce brands are on Shopify. And so, you know, it's a very user-friendly platform and, you know, there are themes that you can use to, you know, build the base. But that itself, you know, it's, it works, but it's not enough. I think over time, it's important to sort of improve on the website and be, you know, um, busy now with other sort of priorities and commitments. But yeah, like I think Shopify is a great platform to have a nice base, but it's important to sort of start building like different features and different things that can optimize the website for like conversions. Um, like for example, even adding an add to cart button to your website at the browse page, um, which I currently don't have yet because I haven't had the time to sort of like revamp my website since launch but um yeah little things like that that really make a difference um from the customer's perspective and making them more likely to purchase as you mentioned earlier like um having the budget as well as reaching the MLU is a really difficult part but what gave you the confidence of being able to sell out those 5,000 boxes of nails and you know also give you the confidence of making you believe that this is something that Want, you were willing to, you know, invest your savings into this business. Yeah, I think I really just trusted my judgment. Like I trusted that, okay, I have an eye for trends. I have an eye for, you know, like um, demand. And so because I personally am a user of my own product, I have people like my best friend, for example, who is an avid user of my product, knowing that there are people out there who will, you know, see my product as a solution to some of the problems um, that gave me enough confidence that, um, you know, there is enough demand um, to 
like sort of move my product. But I guess demand itself is not enough. It's important to obviously market your product well, really sell and create a brand, not just a product. This is something that I don't think I've done very well in just yet, I guess due to lack of capacity. Um, but yeah, so that's sort of trusting in your own judgment and trusting that, you know, this actually makes sense sort of gave me that confidence to sort of risk, you know, some of my savings um, on, yeah, my first big import. <laughs> I guess it's a very good investment decision that you made. <laughs> no, no, oh, I still have a, I still have a lot of boxes sitting at home, but you know, mm-hmm. um, it is moving, and I think like people are slowly coming to learn more about press-ons and they're starting to adopt press-ons. A big part of it is educating the market that mm-hmm. such a product actually exists because a lot of people don't actually think, you know, if they need nails, they don't think press-ons because press-ons have historically had a very sort of bad rep for being looking too fake or being too flimsy. So yeah, a big part of it is really educating the market. Hopping on um, how you are also working in Flex Dev Partner as an investment banking analyst at the same time. You have this both side experience of working in a startup as well as working in Cooperate. What do you think are the biggest difference? Well, it's very, very different. I think um, working... In a more structured role, definitely it's it's more hierarchical. There is hierarchy compared to, say, working at a startup where it's relatively flat. And so I guess when there's hierarchy, there are a lot of systems and processes that are already fixed and put in place. And um, your role is very much defined. And so it's really understanding, okay, what is my role? What is expected of me? And what can I do to do perform my role the best that I can? But then in a startup world, it's a bit more, because there's not as much structure, you sort of just, you sort of make it up as you go. If you put it loosely, it's like, you know, there's not much structure, but I think this is the most efficient way of doing something. So therefore I'm going to try it out. So I guess there's more variety, um, you know, working at a, in a startup environment. And to be honest, like my business, even though it's, you know, it's new, it's a new, new business, I wouldn't like, go too far to call it a startup just yet because, you know, at the end of the day, it's still, you know, a brand that I've started from home. Um, But I guess, you know, the difference really is the lack of structure in a startup versus a more structured hierarchical environment um, in a more, yeah, defined sort of environment. Follow-up question from that. What have you been able to kind of take away from that corporate role into your startup? And I guess vice versa, if you've had that um like a uh, time and ability to do so yeah yeah um so in my role at flagstaff we're a very sort of generalist model and what that means is we work you know across a range of sectors you know like i might be working with an agrochemicals company one day and then i might be working with a gaming company another day and then like a beauty company another day so it's just i get to oversee a lot of different businesses and a lot of different industries um so what that's taught me is how you know, different businesses in different industries, how they're like so different in that there might be certain industries that require more sort of capital investment, more capital intensive than other industries. So just being able to understand the different nuances between different industries, that's what being working in a more generalist sort of environment has taught me. I guess more specifically relating to beauty, though, um, I've been lucky enough to have um, like staff. And so that's really taught me to delve into the beauty space a bit more and understanding, you know, some of the M&A transactions that have taken place um, within the beauty space, you know, seeing how different brands have been sold at certain multiples and understanding what drives the differences in those multiples. Um, that's 
been able to, like, I, with that knowledge, it's helped me sort of think, okay, how can I, you know, position my brand and my business to a point where, you know, if I do one day sell it, can achieve a multiple as high as X brand. So, yeah, I think there, is, there are a lot of things to take away from, you know, working in banking and just seeing how different industries are. Yeah, like this experience is very invaluable. Like it's just you learn so much in such a short period of time. That's really interesting to know how um, the banker side of life provide you with this kind of technical as well as like market industry outlook that might be very helpful in the future for your future business outlook as well. And building up on that, what do you think is the most important skill to have as an entrepreneur? I think I thought about this a lot and I think most recently I've discovered that um, it's really important as a founder to be able to make decisions without emotion and being able to have that mental separation between business and personal life. So I'll give I'll illustrate this with an example. So when I first started the brand with no experience in you know business at all, whatever that went on in my business very much translated to my personal life. So say, you know, you get a negative comments on your Instagram page, on your business page, or you have a customer complaint telling you that the nails fell off and it's low quality. You know, initially I took that very personally. I thought, oh, is my brand not good enough? Is um, what I'm doing just not up to scratch? And um, I would actually dwell on those negative comments, you know, for days and it would really affect my personal life. But then over time, I've started to realise that, you know, you really just have, you have to learn to mentally separate the different aspects of your life because otherwise if you blur those boundaries, it's it's not healthy um, and it makes it a lot harder to make rational decisions when you're making decisions emotionally. So, yeah, if you were to ask me that question now, um, you know, two years into business, one of the biggest skills or most important skills as a founder is to really have um, the ability to, control your emotions and to separate, you know, business life, work life, personal life, mentally. Thank you so much for that. I've, I bet a lot of our listeners can kind of take a lot away from that. Um, so now I guess I'll shift the focus onto how you're able to juggle both your role in corporate and your role as a um, startup founder. So I guess, as you said um, previously, you know, at one point in uni you had three jobs and, you are doing uni at the same time and all that stuff. So I'm sure you have a lot of experience with learning how to juggle um, different roles and how to ensure everything is done effectively. So I guess the question is like what strategies or routines did you have to maintain that work-life balance while pursuing your career in both the corporate and the startup? Strategies and routines. Um, I touched on this briefly a bit earlier, um, having, I guess, being able to say no and being able to prioritise. So um just sort of expanding on what I mentioned before like look I know that Mondays to Fridays is purely work um you know I'm in the office most of the day most of the week well all week actually um and so I know that that time is just for um you know focusing on my career really doing my job well and you know often occasionally like I'll get a text message about my business during like a work day during work hours and it might be like something might be going wrong and when that happens, I just need to remind myself, okay, this time right now is dedicated towards work and work only. So just hold that thought and let's worry about it later. In terms of strategy, it's, again, going back to that mental separation of this time is for this, this time is to get dedicated to this. 
Um, and I guess how do I maintain a social life with all my other commitments? Um, it's remembering who my closest friends are, who I need to prioritise, saying no to, to other commitments that might not be as high on my priority list, not saying that they're not priority, but it's just because you're so limited in terms of capacity, you really need to be selective in, you know, choosing certain people or maybe even choosing yourself, choosing rest over social events. So there's definitely a lot of sacrifice that's involved in order to achieve a balance, but balance can be achieved if you know where your priorities lie. No, 100%. I think as junior students, we can all agree, sometimes there are times in our university kind of studies where sometimes we prioritize our social life too much or like our university life so we kind of have to find that balance and that's really interesting because you're still able to do that both in your corporate role and your startup um which are very um important things in your life the next question from that is what is i guess the most rewarding um aspects of being able to manage both of these roles simultaneously I guess managing both these commitments simultaneously has taught me that you can actually do a lot with your time like if you know, there are two like impending deadlines for both work and your business and you have limited time, you'll be amazed by how much you can actually achieve. <laughs> um, so I think, yeah, I might be working off adrenaline, I'm not sure, but um, I guess managing two sort of hectic commitments has made me realise that if you're efficient, you can actually get a lot of things done. Um, I remember back in uni, like <laughs> if I had like four weeks to do an assignment, I'd do it like 12 hours before the due date. And I'd still manage to get something done, but, you know, I could have spread my time out a bit more and completed my assignment um, in the four weeks that I was given and probably to a high quality. Um, but, yeah, I'd say managing these two roles has just made me realise that, you know, people, people, the brain can do amazing things when under pressure. <laughs> yes, I love that. Very motivating for all of us, I'm sure. We can agree. <laughs> but it, it's, it's not advice I'm giving, though. I don't recommend doing this, you know. Um, leaving things last minute but I'm just saying that if need be (laughs) headlines and doing things last minute can make you more efficient (laughs) yeah no for sure thank you for that so the next part is just I guess some advice your own personal advice of um what would you tell kind of young individuals who are considering pursuing their entrepreneurial dreams yes so I think a lot of people well this is a trap that I fell into and it was that when I knew I wanted to start a business, I I wanted to make sure it was perfect before I launched the business. And that meant, you know, having the perfect packaging, having the perfect like Instagram branding, all that. And I started, I launched my business probably 14 months after I actually came up with the idea, which is way too long. You know, what I should have done was, you know, launched with like a minimum viable product and just you know, improved it over time. So I think my advice would be to just start and just do it because you can't really learn how to start a business. You learn most by doing. And so rather than, you know, doing like startup courses online, perhaps you could do it alongside actually having already launched a business and you're sort of like learning to grow and build upon what you've already started up as a base. So I think, yeah, my best advice is to just start <laughs> well thank you so much for that now i'll pass it back to amanda for some more light-hearted questions yeah yes. now we just have some more fun questions to wrap up the interview <laughs> with so the first one is what is your favorite nail design or trend at the moment i personally don't follow trends even though 
like I know I, I own a business and it's important for your business and your brand to stay up to date with what's most current. But for me, honestly, I just love like a classic French tip. You know, I don't like changing things up that much and a classic French tip just goes with everything. Definitely classic will <laughs> always stay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just adding on this, just out of personal curiosity, do you mm-hmm. also design your own nails, like all the press on nail by yourself? No, so I don't personally design them, but what I do is I get inspiration from, you know, what's popular out there. Um, I might scroll on Instagram and see, oh, I really like this design. So I guess I curate what I like and then I will share those like sort of um, examples with my manufacturer who then sort of like creates the design for me. Like I wouldn't say I'm much of a creative. I don't know. I can't draw. I'm not good at designing, but mm-hmm. I guess I have an eye for designs. <laughs> yeah, that's the main part of being the owner of this business, <laughs> I guess. Okay, the second our fun question is, what yeah. is your favorite way or activity to recharge outside of work? Oh, I love this question because there are a lot of things I like to do outside of work. Um, main thing being traveling, solo traveling. I Over time, I've realized that I do enjoy spending time alone. Um, like to give you a bit of context, I've always been an extrovert. So I've always, you know, I always get my energy from people. But I realize that equally I can get just as much energy and recharge when on my own. And so I discovered the world of solo traveling last summer and I, Um, traveled around Australia for two months on my own and um, you know that's just taught me a lot about life it's given me a lot of perspective on you know what actually matters in life and also made me realize that home is really whatever you bring with you um, not so much a physical place Um, so yeah my favorite way to really recharge outside of work is spending time alone even going on like a tiny house trip or Airbnb trip alone on a weekend would be very nice (laughs) yeah Solo traveling has always been something that I really want to try, but I haven't tried before. Yeah, I really it, should start doing that. I, I swear by it. And if mm-hmm. there's anyone, like people who are listening to this episode, like I highly encourage you um, solo travel because you experience a whole lot more when you're out there on your own. Because when yeah. you're traveling with someone, you know, you might say no to certain experiences because the person you're traveling with might not want to do it. But when you're by yourself, you will get to do if, like every single thing that you want to do you'll be able to yeah. tick all those you know um, boxes off so if there's anyone out there who's listening right now who is sort of on the fence just do it definitely Re- reach out to me and I'll tell you all about it <laughs> <laughs> we need to have another podcast episode Absolutely. about this <laughs> okay just the last one um if you could describe yourself in three words what would they be the first word would be curious that's the whole reason why I went solo traveling. <laughs> I was curious. Yeah. I wanted to know what was out there. <laughs> um, the s- second, the second word I'd say would be I guess compassionate. I do have a lot of compassion for people. I try my best to be understanding of others, and so you know I don't really see you know hierarchy. I don't see like title. I just see everyone as human. So I have a lot of compassion for everyone. Third word, maybe a bad word, but a little hot-headed at times <laughs> for me like I like to I like things to move quickly you know if I want to achieve something I want results I just want to you know get there mm. um but um over time I've learned to slow down a bit and just enjoy the process of getting there so 
Um, I'm learning to not be hot-headed, but I'd say I'm, I'm still getting there. <laughs> Definitely. Not everything is perfect, so we all have something to learn about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Louisa, for joining us today. It's really interesting to hear your journey from starting a business as a student to now working full-time and juggling out an uh, anchor league at the same time as well. We all got some really valuable lessons from here, including like time management as well as the mental state that we should have if someone if we're interested in starting a business. All of those are really valuable to us. And yeah, just thank you again for joining us today and for our audience. We are excited to see you in our next episode. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on here. And look, thanks for allowing me to share a bit about my journey and a few bits of wisdom. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, look, I, I do enjoy mentoring people. I love, you know, sharing my experiences and teaching younger people. And so, you know, if there's anyone who'd like to have a chat, you know, I'm really I'm, like my inbox is always open. Feel free to like message me on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to have a coffee and yeah, potentially, you know, mentor. Yeah. Thank you so All much right. for offering Thank this you. opportunity too. <laughs> Beautiful. Thanks. Okay.